to Sheet Stuff You Should Know. This is a special edition at the ASI annual meeting. <laughs> yes, we're broadcasting from Amy Livestock San Diego headquarters, <laughs> which is currently at three chairs, uh, maybe four chairs if someone joins us here in the Sheraton Hotel. Um, I rented the space. It's $45 a night to park my car, so I feel I'm entitled to these chairs and this table. At least, at least four chairs, at least four <laughs> <Right>. chairs. <laughs> and, and I don't know that anybody's going to be brave enough to join three crazy people with microphones. Um, <laughs> This time of night, but you never know. You never know. We're hoping so. We're hoping they do. We're we right are hoping the they bar. do. <laughs> so it's all three of us here in person. This is the second time we've done this ever. Third time we've done this ever. We did it in yeah, the asylum. That's right. That's right. We did it at the uh, Bakersfield. At Bakersfield. Great Bakersfield. Mm -hmm. And now we're here in San Diego. <laughs> oh my word. And now we got some deliveries. And we have a care package. Oh dear. Yes. No whiskey. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Careful, we're, we're live. <laughs> I'll take that one, whatever that is. I'll take whatever's left after. Well, I want one of those. Here you go. He's got the gin one. All I'll right. Take one. All right. All right. Thank this you. This is great podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We got some good stuff going. Yeah. Yeah. There, well, make sure this gets on the microphone. Yes, indeed. There we so, go. we're here Cheers. at convention. We just finished day one. Or day, it's day, it depends on what you did. If you did tours or not tours, but... Uh, anyway, full today was the first meetings. full day of meetings. Mm -hmm. So, what, what did you guys what did you guys go to? What did you see? I did like the first meeting of the day at like 7:30 in the morning. <laughs> but my I gave a talk today at eight o'clock this morning, and it was great. It was fun. I got to inform our industry that FDA will be changing um, antibiotic rules, and that's, that's always a hard hit. So is that? going to be different than the California, current California rules? No, so it's, it's pretty much exactly We're basically adopting the California rules to the entire nation. Yeah. yeah. And that's the, basically you need to have a vet client relationship and, and for get all scripts. Yeah, for all injectables, intramammaries, and all that. Yeah. And right now it's just feed added it, feed it. Feed fed, and water. Feed and water fed mm -hmm. antibiotics, so it'll expand to the injectables. Yeah. Well, that must have gone over real well. Yeah. We had a lot of really good questions. And I think the most important part is everyone just needs to know what's going to happen and prepare. And if you have a vet, it really doesn't change much. It just changes when, you know, last minute you're going to get those dry tubes for your mastitis or if you're going to go get some penicillin for what you usually use it on. You just need to plan ahead and make sure that your vet has scripted that to you and you can have it on hand. So I didn't listen to the meeting, so I'm going to pretend like I did and know everything you talked about and start asking questions. Cool. But um, in California, when they put that rule in, one of the biggest challenges was a lot of people went to feed stores for their yep. antibiotics. And in California, the feed stores have had some pretty creative ways to kind of adapt to that. Yeah. But, um, you know, if you're in one of these states don't have this rule now that are going to have to do it, um, you know, how can you go to your feed store and kind of be proactive and figure out how you're going to source that, yeah. especially if you have only a couple hits. I think that is kind of the one thing that I wasn't really sure how to prepare for all 50 states because they're all going to be different. So everyone, so prescription drugs are regulated through the Board of Pharmacy 
and feed stores didn't have to have a pharmacy license because they were over-the-counter drugs. But when that change happened in California, we have kind of a lower level of pharmacy for food animal drugs only. Now this law for FDA is all veterinary species, so any over-the-counter antibiotics for dogs, cats, fish, birds, they're all going prescription. Um, but food animal drugs in California can be sold through veterinary food animal drug retailers. So it's like a lower level license through the Board of Pharmacy. So some feed stores were able to maintain that or get that in this change in California and still if they, they were providing these drugs as a service to their community in the first place and they wanted to keep that. So, but that will be different probably for from state to state, depending on how they regulate those drugs. And didn't, um, I think some of the feed stores too, they developed relationships with local vets in their area and then were able to connect a lot of people to these vets and still kind of run the, you know, run the product through their system, make their margins and things like that, but connect the, connect the vet to the range. Right. Uh, I think the feed stores are a pretty good resource to go to and don't go and demand that I need right. antibiotics, but go and say, gosh, I, I want to get antibiotics. I know I need this. I don't know where to start. Right. They're a really good resource. And veterinarians often can't um, maintain a supply of antibiotics that a lot of people need. So having that feed store help with that supply and distribution is really huge. So you know, being I think we'll have to be creative so that people still have access, um, and then you know plan ahead and have a good relationship with your vet um, long before you have an emergency arise. Has it changed? Um your perception of how people get antibiotics, has it changed in California? Has it changed your ability to get them other than just it's a different process? <laughs> we got two mics and three people, so there is a little juggling. And a circle table. But we got a superb uh, audio editor that'll leave it all in. And our technical director yeah. is... I think he's at the bar. That's <laughs> yeah. Is he either at the bar drinking or he's reading a bedtime story to his child? I'm not sure. One of the two. Yeah. One so of the two. Depending on what you think he's like, he's doing that thing. We'll introduce you to him someday. Maybe. Maybe. Um, so you asked a great question, and um, I have to talk until I remember exactly what the question was. But the biggest change we saw... Um, or at least on our operation, is I think it actually improved our relationship with our vet. It, it made us realize that, you know, um, we have such a great, we have one, we have a great vet. We've, we've had a great vet, he's the same guy. Um, but it, it encouraged us to start conversations with him and then be a lot more intentional about. Um, hey, he needs to be out on our ranch and doing right. these different things. We talked about you know learning to preg check ourselves to try to save some money, and we said no, he needs to preg check our cows so he can see the animals, see right. the health, see what's going on. Right. Um, ultrasounding the ewes. We one of the reasons we trained our vet to ultrasound for us and work, and he trained himself, but we kind of gave him the first big set of used to work on but we did that so he could learn our sheet more he got hands on he's right. into it and right. this whole process has you know getting the drugs we had no hiccups in the delivery right um, but we have an improved relationship with a veterinarian now because of it and it makes us better ranchers so. and one of the questions that I get a lot is you know do I need does the vet need to come out and give the antibiotic like how does that work is that what has happened on your? I think I imagine 
that vet client patient relationship is going to look different on every farm. Yeah, and scale's a big issue on that. I right. Mean, it depends. But the point is, is you need to start and talk to your vet, and if you're not giving a shot right, you need to be open to that vet helping you and teaching you, hey, you need to give it this way. Not you're giving it too close to the bone of the shoulder. You need to be more into that right. You're up onto the neck right. a little more. You're going straight in and not at an angle. You're using too long of a needle or too short. Those little things like that make a difference for us. We um, we were actually able to pool with some neighbor farms and ranches, and we did a couple of kind of trainings, basic trainings focused on animal husbandry. How do you give a shot? Why do you give a shot? What's the difference between a tetracycline antibiotic and a penicillin and a macrolide class? Kind of this kind of this broad spectrum, basic information for our employees, and for us too. I mean, I learned I learned there too. But all of those things, and you get your vet involved in building these programs, and it really helps you and it helps your guys understand more and it right. helps the whole you know, it helps your area this is all second hand from my wife but when i think one of the frustrations for veterinarians is, is to get a call on friday night saying i got a treat i need antibiotics tomorrow and not having any kind of relationship with that operation or that that person and not knowing the animals and i think that's you know, I know there in a lot of parts of the state, a lot of parts of the country, there's challenges finding small ruminant vets, um, but they're there, and I think we're trying to work on getting more people used to working with small ruminants, um, which will help with that as well. But but know your vet doesn't want to get called Friday night asking for a script for Saturday. Nor does your uh, medicine supplier want to get an order for you know. No. A thousand doses of CFD the day before you mark lamps. Really? Not that I've ever done that before, but it's really important to plan ahead, and especially now and with all the supply chain issues, issues we're having, yeah. um, we've been having to be a little more disciplined in forecasting our needs. Yeah. Our uh, branding paint has been incredibly short this year, yeah. and so we basically had a per we've had for the last six months permanent orders in with our supplier that hey, any of this product comes in, we're going to take X amount, and we just you know we don't we try not to take it all because everybody needs it, but we try to make sure that we have a decent inventory and we carry a little more inventory than normal. It's expensive to carry inventory, but it's important and you gotta yeah, you gotta know what you're doing. But it all comes from having those relationships with your vet. Right. Know the medicines and you need to store. use. Yeah. Have the relationship with the feed store if that's where you're getting your product, your supplier if you're getting it through a supplier. Yeah, yeah. super, super important. I was scared of the, the rule when it came into California, but it, you know, looking back on it, it's done nothing but help our ranch. Mm -hmm. um, I know there's some smaller places that definitely struggled and had some issues, uh, but I think if you really are honest and look back, Every dollar I've ever spent on any kind of vet consultation has paid for itself tenfold. You know, the thing they told me in conversation that one time I paid them, I used ten times over right. the next three years. Right. So it's it's very valuable and it, it hasn't hurt at all. So there's a lot of things in California that's hurt us. That's not one of them. That's a very true. Well, anyway, so much for banter. That was my morning. <laughs> How's your morning? Just getting everybody mad and yeah. Yeah. No, they were good sports. And again, the, the main goal was just to, there were a lot of really good questions. <laughs> and the main goal was just to make sure that everyone knows it's happening. And <laughs> yeah, and we can prepare. Because if we were blindsided with this issue, then that would be a whole different right. problem.
So Dan, what'd you go to? What what what, what was your morning like? And afternoon and evening. Tacos were good. Tacos were really good. Tacos were really good. Uh, the the lamb on the yeah Rosoto. the barbacoa tacos. You didn't have any tacos. <laughs> Only one. I had I had. Five. I lost I lost track. I, I had five and a plate of nachos that I made. I lost. Did track. you have the risotto? <laughs> that was yes. Mushroom that was really good. That was amazing. No, I didn't have that. that I just had really, tacos. Really good and nachos. A lot of I'm gonna have heartburn. <laughs> <laughs> good. That was the highlight. I think that was the highlight. Uh, what the heck did I do today? I think I good good uh, genetics discussion this morning. Were you at the genetics mm-hmm. stuff for a little while? Um, yeah, the wool index. Yeah, interesting information about our fine wool index that I think holds some promise. Tell me about that. Well, I was at a wool council meeting. I didn't get to go to any more meetings. Uh, it's a, a student from Kansas State yeah, that's been Allison working Crane. on it with Allison Crane. And um, and what I really liked about it is that they they folded the economics into it. So really looking at, at what parameters in wool actually result in, in improved economics for producers. And I think they've made some real headway there. Um, so I think that was good. I think um, good uh, good discussion of kind of um, how far down the road to genetic prediction we are and maybe how far we have to go in the sheep industry, which, which I think is helpful. What are your thoughts on that question? Well, I'd like to discuss that at a later date. When... Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, that's, we've talked about this before, and I think, um, I think the 30,000-foot elevation perspective that I've got on it is that diversity is both our weakness and our strength in the sheep industry. And so figuring out a way to capture that diversity in terms of genetic prediction and helping people understand what that diversity can do positively or negatively in their own operations is really important. I don't want us to become foster farms because that's not our strength in the sheep industry. And um, I, I really, really feel very strongly that that, that <clears throat> we can't become foster farming, that we can't become, you know, a pork production. Yeah. And it, it really, and it comes down to the nature of a ruminant animal. I mean, the dairies have gotten as close as you can to that. True. But, but even them, they need that roughage, they need that little bit of diversity that, you know, you can't quite, that you, that you don't have to have with birds or, right. or hogs. And so I do think, hopefully we have a little hedge on that. Just being a ruminant is going to prevent a lot of that. And a lot of people don't want to share, and a lot of people really like to share, so that'll keep a little <laughs> diversity in the industry. So. Yeah. Yeah. What, what did you think of the genetic discussion, Dad? Be interested in your perspective on it. Dr. Bush. <laughs> I I have a what I think is a very healthy skepticism of a lot of genetic um, work and not the work that's done, but just how it might be implemented. I always have this fear of you talk about all the time with single trait selection. Um, even with disease resistance, if we're focusing on one disease, what does that do to the rest of the animal? And often we think of so like for the immune system, it's this huge 
system that has many different functions. And if we're looking at one disease that maybe needs antibody response to be really effective at beating that disease, maybe we're not you know not selecting for the cellular response that's really effective for a different disease. So even while we think we're boosting the immune system, we're really just focusing on one part of it. And that's what worries me with some of this genetic selection. But I think with the technologies that Dr. Murdoch presented, we're getting a much broader look at the genes that are um, important for certain diseases, and <clears throat> which just means that it would take a lot longer to achieve maybe the goals that we have for some of these genetic traits, but we talk about general directions and I think it will get us there. So I think the science is really cool. What worries me is how we might implement it, but I think there was a really balanced discussion today about phenotype and how the genetics yeah. never lie, but what because there's that interaction between genetics and environment, that you still need to consider how I well they we perform in I think we dodge environment a lot in the industry. I mean, yeah. When we're talking genetics, I think we discount the effect environment has on these genetics. And right, that, like and the that gets same expressed. genetics isn't going to perform equally in totally different environments. Yeah, and, and I think it, and I think it, it, it shows in the in the criticisms of it as much as the compliments right. of yeah. it. It's the, it's the, oh, I did this test and it came out completely wrong. My, my, you know, I know this cow isn't this way. Well, no, it has a genetic disposition towards it. It doesn't mean it's going to do it. The environmental factors are going to right. express it or not express it negatively or positively. And then on the vice versa, it's, I'm going to have this perfect animal on paper. And then you buy that stud ram with the perfect numbers and it ends up being bow-legged and three feet tall, Fair you know, enough. or something, something not, you know. I thought thing. you were talking about me. <laughs> Sorry. That was too loud. The one time I had the microphone. <laughs> yeah, perfect, perfect level. Sorry. That's, that's good. That's good. I could tell that you do this a lot. <laughs> I forgot. It was really, really. It was going to be brilliant, it though. It was. Yeah. Shoot. One of the things that, that, strikes me in all of this is to think about the number of sheep breeds in the world and how that's all the result of people paying attention to what the environment did to their genetics, right? And so to some degree that's our strength as an industry mm -hmm. and maybe my little, you know, 120 pound lambs aren't exactly what part of the market wants, but there's a place for all of that too. Um, and those ewes that produce those 120-pound lambs in my environment thrive, do really well. Period. They thrive. Yeah. That, yeah. Your sheep thrive in your yeah. area. Yeah. Absolutely. And I always like to look at. I mean, we had Richard Hamilton on the on the, the podcast. He has a very unique set of genetics that thrive in his environment. I literally run sheep right next to him. I have a completely different set of genetics, and they thrive in right. our environment. Right. And they literally share a fence line. Right. And so I think it's really important to always have that perspective that, that yep. you got to just find something that thrives in your 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 pastures diversity, your pasture health, your grazing rotations, your breeding schedules, your lambing facilities, your personality, and the way you interact with all of those things play into what that right sheep for your area right. is. And if you try to just do what the neighbor's doing, you're going to miss something because you're different than the neighbor. No matter how hard you try to be the same, you're going to be a little different. Right. So, right. Yeah. But just find something that thrives. Right. Absolutely. Right. 
Yeah, and I don't know, you've talked about the kind of heritage, heritage breeds a couple of times and how much value that has. It's kind of a genetic bank for genes that maybe we don't have in our commercial flocks and, you know, if something ever happened where we needed to adapt quickly, that would be a huge resource. That genetic diversity is really important. I always love the heritage breeds. I don't have any, and I hardly ever get to see them, but whenever I do, I get super excited. We can help you. Yeah. We can help you. How's that? You. you got a couple? Robin. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll get you some We'll get you some heritage breeds. <laughs> are Navajo churros heritage? Oh, yes, they are. Oh, well, I do know those. Well, I do okay. know those well, personally. Jacob, Jacob, yes. No, I have, there's a producer in Oregon we buy lambs from. Yeah. And he always sends us like six Jacob sheep <laughs> in, with the, in with the lambs. And I'm always, I always kind of look at him like, well, that's good. Oh, the rest of the lambs are good enough. <laughs> Keep you on your toes. Keep you on your toes. Yeah. What did you do? What, you, what was your day? Uh, well, I, I, I'm on the wool council, so I sat in the wool council in the morning, and I sat in the wool council in the afternoon. Sweet. And then I snuck out to talk on a little panel for the PERT committee. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I don't know. It was a good, good, good day, a lot of information. For me, the highlight was Dr. Frank Mittler's presentation, which was just, it was really, really good for me. I, I've heard him speak a couple times, but he is, um, he's an engaging speaker for one. He's incredibly knowledgeable on a subject, maybe one of the top experts in the world. And that's not just saying it, that's he's literally on UN councils and committees coming up with these world documents. Like, he's an absolute expert in the field, and, and it's really just brilliant to hear someone articulate the global warming carbon, uh, carbon emissions issue in an objective scientific perspective from what he's done there there's his influences in there but it's you know it, it it's not he's not trying to please anybody with his science uh, he's trying to promote this is how I, this is what i've discovered this is what i see this is how it goes and i really just it's very refreshing and um, yeah i just i think it's great so one of the things i i like about all of that is something that we've all talked about in podcasts is the idea that that ruminants are kind of miraculous animals, that they take this material that that nothing else can digest, <clears throat> turn it into fiber, turn it into meat, turn it into milk, and I think um, you know we we have a, as a society have lost sight of the importance of being able to make a food and fiber product off of lands that won't grow any other crops, and and I think that as you talk about climate and greenhouse gases and all these other things, ruminants, this is a cliche, but ruminants are going to save the world, right? Because that's the only way that we can, we can convert places that are too hot, too steep, too dry, too something to grow a crop into something that supports humans. Yeah, I think my favorite line from this presentation that he did was when he was... Um, he talked about uh, the vegans in his class and how, hold on, that's just water there, Dan, don't spit it up. Um, but the, the vegans and how, you know, he'd, he'd have the, in his classroom, he'd ask, is, any, you know, is anybody vegans in here? And he always has a handful of people and then he asks them, you know, do you, what do you eat? How do you get your food? And, and they go into, well, we buy only plant stuff. And he's like, well, those plants, organic. they're organic. You got to buy organic or you got to buy, you know, 100% plant-based things. 
And you go, well, you know, they need to fertilize that. Where does the fertilizer come from that fertilizes that? Well, it comes out of the butt of an animal that's being raised for livestock production. So even that doesn't, and I just thought that was absolutely brilliant. You know, it just, I don't know, it, it pleases me as a livestock producer. But I think, I think one of the other things too that, um, a lot of times agriculture gets a little discounted for not being the smartest person in the room. But when all of this stuff gets talked about in, in the environment and they say cows are the biggest polluters, as a rancher, or sheep are the biggest polluters, whatever one you want to pick, cow or sheep, as a producer you look around and you see everybody driving all these cars, doing all this stuff, flying their planes, moving everything back and forth. And then you look at your sheep grazing in the field and you're like, that's not right. It's just I don't know how, but it's not. Doesn't fit. That's not right. And to be able to actually have someone dive into that science and start picking it apart and proving what we think we know is really fulfilling. But you know, it, it's it's nice to be able to hear that kind of articulated from the scientific level from right. a different angle. So, right. Yeah, that was really good. I really enjoyed that. I'm a sheep rancher, not a soil scientist. <laughs> And I still keep trying to figure out, like, how how exactly does the soil hold carbon? How does it hold it in there? I mean, we, we sequester carbon, we do different things to it, but can you maybe, I don't know if you're the right guy to ask or whether I should ask Rosie. <laughs> there you go. But, like, what's the actual function? What's... Yeah, so it's the whole life that's in the soil. It's not just dirt, it's soil. So there's... I've gotten corrected on that a couple times. Yeah, especially soil people care. That's a big deal. Um, there's, you know, bacteria, there's fungi, there's roots, there's a whole network of organisms that live down there that need carbon. Carbon is a component of every body system, every organism. Carbon is that kind of building block, basically. Um, and so when you have life in the soil, it sequesters carbon. I think that's the big point that he tried to make between harvesting hay and feeding it versus mm -hmm. raising with animals. Even with manure application, you can get that benefit. It's just a little bit, maybe a little bit different. But when we're just applying nitrogen, we're not necessarily getting that same benefits to the life that's under that, kind of, that soil top layer. I think the other, other piece of that with grazing, um, effective grazing management, we can build soil organic matter, and that organic matter is basically carbon that's sequestered in the soil utilized by the soil microbes but but that also has all these other benefits that that are in our interest to achieve you know water holding capacity and fertility and, and forage production and so when we get all of that right which many of us do we're building that soil organic matter through our grazing practices so how is it expressed like topically if you look at the if you look at a pasture what are you looking for to see? This is a very, this has very healthy, or I think this has very healthy soil underneath, or this looks like the soil's really depleted or some issues here. What kind of, when you're just visually looking at it, what are you looking for to see? You know, how is that expressing itself well or not well in a, in a pasture? You know, part of that's kind of the recovery rate after you've been through a pasture, how, how quickly it will come back, particularly this time of year. 
Um, if it's holding more water, it's typically got more organic matter. Um, species composition is a big one. So we've got species that like um, kind of horror management. So foxtail, um, we tend to see where we're- I have a lot of foxtail. <laughs> I must not be doing a good job. But, but you've got diversity. Foxtail loves high nitrogen. Absolutely. And low pH, Absolutely. right? Low pH or high pH? I can't remember. We're one or the other Something. on some ranches and where we're screwed up. And so the other tail loves it. That's the other thing that we can see is is do we have nutrients that undesirable plants are able to take up better than the stuff we want. So it, in our country in the foothills we see a lot of thistles where we've got more nitrogen than we than we might want. So this is another total kind of a side question, but like still in the same subject area, just kinda like, you know, on a on a on a dartboard. You got like the center you're shooting for. This is like hitting the three on the bottom side. Usually where I hit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, uh, compost application helps because you're introducing organic matter that will begin to decompose when it's incorporated with the existing soil and and improve that soil health. Um, What's the difference between that and uh, biosolids? Like processed biosolids to the, you know, not raw sewage, just, but like processed, yeah. you know what I mean? That's a good question. I'm not, I'm probably not the guy to answer that, at least not tonight. Um, I think one of the, one well, of the I gave you drinks so you'd make up answers. I know, Dan. well, okay, all right, just a second. <laughs> hold guessing your, at this. Hold your horses. <laughs> well, and the reason for the question is because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the programs or things, they won't allow biosolids to qualify right. for a soil amendment that helps the soil. But, but they'll allow compost. Yeah, and they'll even allow raw manure sometimes. Too. One, of the, one of the things we do find on some rangelands, though, with compost, and, and I would assume with other nutrient applications, is that our desirable forage species have kind of evolved to grow well in a low nutrient environment. So part of part of the sheep herder definition of rangeland is like we said before, it's too steep, too dry, too hot, too cold, too something. And the soil's poor. And so when we add nutrients, unless we get the rest of the management right, we're gonna get plants that can take up those excess nutrients. And so in our part of the world, in the foothills, sometimes when we apply a compost I haven't worked with anybody that's applied biosolids. What we get is foxtail, is thistle or foxtail or bronco grass or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, rip gut is what we call it up there. And so because it, it literally would rip your gut rips, if you tried to eat it. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, so I think part of it's getting the management right of the above ground vegetation, and, and sometimes that. We do that well in some cases, some place, some, sometimes we need to work on it, I think. And as far as like the difference between biosolids and compost, I, I'm making this up, I don't know, but I <laughs> maybe it's a question <laughs> in the form of a made-up answer. Um, <laughs> so we excel at. It's <laughs> what we're known for. If biosolids are processed and dried, right? They're dried? Uh, dried down, yeah. yeah then maybe there's not as much like organic activity or like, microbial activity. Microbial activity and in compost. Well, I know like that 
the, the pH is way better balanced in a lot in the compost than it would be in biofuels. Oftentimes, you need to add lime or something. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, I know there's some heavy metals that come through biosolids that won't be in compost that can affect negatively or positively if you're deficient in those heavy metals. But it depends <laughs> on what it is. But well, I, I've always been curious of that because to me, manure is manure is manure, whether it's from a cow or a chicken right. or a person or anybody. But right. There seems to be like a mentality thing that if it's from a person, it doesn't count. <laughs> I think the other piece of it though, and this we get into this kind of in nutrient monitoring and water quality. So if you think about grazing, a sheep that's grazing on a pasture and then doing what all sheep do after they graze, depositing manure on that pasture. It's a really polite way of saying taking the poo. Exactly. <laughs> they're not adding any nutrients. Yeah. Because they're not taking in any nutrients that aren't already, already there. And so what we find from a water quality standpoint, you know, this is irrigated pasture issues in the valley. Grazing is a nitrogen sink. We're actually taking nitrogen out of the system by grazing unless we're adding nitrogen back in, unless hmm. we're fertilizing. So you think about what we're harvesting with, with grazing animals, we're, harv we're turning that nitrogen that they're grazing into meat, into fiber, into bone. And unless we put nitrogen back in the system, it's actually removing nitrogen from those pastures. Now that kind of is a twist on what Frank was talking about. Grazing animals could be a water quality benefit in terms of nitrogen if we're grazing some of these landscapes that, that maybe have too much nitrogen. So then my other question uh -oh. is um, like in our area, we the farmers will summer follow their ground, open it up, and then plant the wheat crop in the in the fall and then it grows and then they harvest it in the spring and you graze it and for one or two years and then you summer follow it again. What is that summer following doing? And is that hurting? Or like how does that affect that carbon sink equation and what that's you know, how come that's effective in increasing the yield of the wheat the following year? So what does the summer fallow what what are the sheep eating during a summer fallow? Oh, they'll be on another field or they'll be there and maybe pick off some morning glory that grows in the field. But okay. yeah, I mean usually you're just disking in and getting rid of any leftover stubble and then you a lot of it's opening the ground up to be able to take the rain and hold the moisture and things. And they're they're consuming those summer annual weeds at a point before they can produce seed, right? So they're eating yeah. morning glory, they're eating some other summer annuals in that system. So part of it's a weed control um, benefit, I think. Part of it, now those sheep are probably getting some protein at that time of year. Uh, Sometimes it depends on what they're on. Uh, the morning glory, they don't need the protein as much. Yeah. Well, they might actually. They'd have trouble digesting the vines if they're long. So that. We get some bezoars. <laughs> <laughs> what are those? They're giant balls that form in the gut. <laughs> and if you've read Harry Potter, you know what bezoars are, right? I don't know where it is in Harry Potter. Well, I just know, yeah, about them. I know about them through multiple necropsies. <laughs> So does Harry Potter, yeah, apparently. I guess. <laughs> All right, back to, you know, we'll diverge from literature yeah. now. Um, so if they're getting next, if they're getting nutrients that you're adding, mm -hmm. if you're putting protein out, 
then yeah, they probably are providing some nutrient benefit in those but, soils as well. So just from the nutrients of the excretion of the manure, that's what's going yeah, on. Yeah, but, but it's largely a weed, weed management, kind of soil management. But by opening it up, that helps soften it, because they always talk about softer farmers. I'm not a farmer. They always talk about soft ground. You don't want the, you don't want the livestock because they pack the ground. When you pack the ground, you don't get the growth. And you want a summer follow to soften it up. Well, and that's why that's why people run sheep instead of cows, or traditionally ran sheep instead of cows in the Montezuma Hills, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, because the type of soil and the cows would pack it more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, Dr. Mittler talked a little bit. He said he was talking about um, engaging the consumer and getting involved in social media. Excuse me. Um, getting involved in social media, getting out in front, telling your story, and promoting what you're doing, and not letting the activists that, that you know, the animal rights activists that don't want you to run any livestock um, from telling your story for you. And one of the things I've been struggling with, and I want to pose this question to both of you guys, is when uh, <laughs> lucky, lucky you. Um, <laughs> When, what's the responsibility, what's the responsibility or how much of the public's view of our product is shaped by the retail or restaurant exchange selling the story that that consumer says they want to hear versus, you know, you go and you try to promote your story on Instagram and then you go to the store and the store says, here, we can give you this grass-fed ABF gap for RWS land. You know, how, how do you, you know, where's the, where's the responsibility lie in that equation? And how much influence does that information at that exchange point have on that consumer? Honestly, I've never been to a restaurant where they explain to me why one product would be better than another. I've never, when I go to the grocery store, I have a list. Is that true? Yeah. You told me they had the restaurant you and Brian went to, and they explained oh, all yeah. the products. That's unique. <laughs> oh, hey, so one time, there you go. <laughs> one time. Yeah. I was at a restaurant with my husband on my birthday, and they presented a lamb that was locally raised, and but it, I knew that it was a false story, <laughs> which was a little frustrating. Um, I think most people were like, ooh, and then just ate it. But, <laughs> but, that, but that's my but, question. How um, influential is that point? For You know, you had a restaurant of 100 people. No, it wasn't 100 people. Well, 10 people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but it's a really nice restaurant. The chef tells this story. You know it's a false story. The other nine don't. Yeah. And they think that that story's true. Yeah. And that perpetuates and that's the idea. Yeah. But how often do you think that happens? I think most All the influencing happens. Yes, but like the impact. <laughs> I think most influencing happens at the media level, at the TV level, at the movie level, at the Instagram level. Like I, I don't think most people go to restaurants and grocery stores to receive information. I think they already have a perception. That's why there's auctions, because I have this perception, I want antibiotic free. I don't go to the store to make that decision. I think most people, when they go to the store, they're gonna pick the cheapest option. I think that's the key point. I, and there's been some, some survey research that kind of backs that up, that, that if you ask 
somebody away from the grocery store or away from the restaurant, what's important to you? And they'll say things like antibiotic free, grass fed, carbon neutral, all those things that we talked about today. If you go and look at how they vote with their dollars, it's economics. So I agree with all of that, with the caveat or the exception of when you have uh, retailers say our customer is demanding ABF. I don't disagree with that at all. And so then they come up with a program that allows them to label it ABF per the nuances of the USDA guidelines. They put all the liability on the producer. And then they sell and tell the consumer that says, I want ABF here. You now get to have cheap ABF. And that tells that consumer, consumer that. Though, right? like the but only the consumer has a million ideas. Sure. The point is, is when you say, yeah, we actually can produce that on a cheap scale, and it's your 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 idea that this is good is correct, yeah. rather than saying we can't so, produce that much. Ignorance. And I guess that's my ignorance of this the whole production chain is that the retailer that creates that product, like. I mean, I guess it's the demand that they've decided exists. The retailer is in charge of labeling and marketing the product. So they gotta label it and they gotta resell it. And they want that label to hit every single one of those key bubble words in their studies. And they don't care about any of the production side. I mean, they, some of them do. And you know that if you go to different grocery stores, you can tell the ones that really care about quality meats and the ones that just wanna sell meat. But there's a lot of responsibility, I feel, and a lot of education that, and not that they need to have a, well, actually, before the grocery stores were huge, you had butchers. The person would go into the butcher and the butcher would tell the person what's good, what's not good, here's this, here's that. We don't have that anymore, and so because we've lost that interface, we're not educating people at the meat counter, which is where most of the opportunity to educate is. So how do we flip that around? I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with you. I also do think that people vote with their pocketbooks and they'll say they'll pay more for something until they're actually forced to put a debit card down. And well, you just put it on your credit card, it comes out of somebody else's account. <laughs> exactly, I mean, exactly. You don't really have to pay that off, right? It's but I, minimum. How do, we, how do we flip that around? That was a joke. Pay off your credit card every month, then you're borrowing from the bank. They're not borrowing from you. <laughs> Wait, credit cards? You, little economic advice for everybody out there. You, you can get credit cards? Oh, yeah, yeah. You Ooh. run out of credit. <laughs> I bought sheep. <laughs> yeah. they, can't, they won't find us. <laughs> Sorry, I totally derailed this. So how, I guess my question is, how do we turn that around? And I, I do think that there is as, as much ill that we've, evil as, as we've had from social media, I think that's given us as producers an opportunity to reach out directly to consumers that we've never had before. And I think there are people who do it well. I think um, not to, uh, to give Ryan any more um, ego boost than he needs, but but Ryan does that well. But part of it is that we got to be honest about what what we're doing and how what it takes to to do it, right? And I think that's something that you do well, something that we strive to do well. 
and I think consumers respond to that. But how do we how do we reach that mass market? I think that's the challenge. I was talking with Joe Posey earlier. I wish he was here, but he was talking. He's actually right there on the hey. other side of the glass. Let's go get him. So, Should we go get him? Maybe. <laughs> talking about how, you know, because he lives north of San Francisco, and things changed for them, and in order to stay in sheep production, he went to all the Whole Foods and promoted land, his lamb, and was able to sell his lamb in these really great grocery stores, And but he was physically there, educating the public. Yeah, and promoting his product right. honestly. I yeah. you, you buy right. posing lamb, you're getting what you're blessed. I mean, he's... He's one of the best at that, and, and that's, yeah, I can't say enough good about him and what he does. And I think he's a good testament to being able to explain to people, here's how we do it, here's how we can do it. He'll also be the first to tell you that I can't supply Costco the way I run my sheep. I can't supply Walmart. I can't supply these other stores. I can supply these that I'm doing. Right. And I, I think it's really important. That, that And that's what I mean about, like, these larger, especially these larger retailers, they're, they're, um, they can make more money if they've just put cheap stuff that hit the buzzwords on the shelf and right. they'll do anything to get that. They'd rather do that than spend that little bit of extra money and get that customer service standing right. in the front helping to educate the buyers on what actually, how meat actually is quality, what defines a quality yeah. cut. And you can still sell grass-fed product. Grass-fed product is phenomenal. It has characteristics that are unique to other things. Grain-fed beef and lamb can be phenomenal in its own way, but you have to understand those qualities rather than just worrying about the buzzwords, which so much of the marketing is pushed from. And, and I agree it starts on the social media, it starts in that area, but so much of that reinforcement of these ideas happens at these retail levels when you have a, I, don't, I, I use, I don't know if ABF's a good term, but um, a good example to use, but you can use um, some of the different handling programs or things like that. Um, a lot of those are people that, or not people, but you sign contracts and say, I promise not to do that, to, to use a hot shot, say. And then they sign the affidavit then the auditors leave, and then they go out and use a hot shot because they have a chief that needs to have a hot shot used on it. They're not abusing anything, but they're they're not telling the whole truth when it comes to marketing that product. And the, the retailers and everybody is finding, from an industry standpoint, we need to recognize that all of these programs, they're getting the producer to sign the affidavit. That means all of the liability on these programs is put on the poorest guy in the in the supply chain, and that and that we need to we as an industry need to recognize that and start sharing that liability through the whole system. The the retailer and the packer and the feeder need to share some of that responsibility along with this producer. You know, the the, the family that's making a living out in the desert. They need to. They shouldn't be the ones liable for an antibiotic-free thing. So I, anyway, I, that's a really good point, and I, that that also, and maybe this is kind of the transition to talking about the value of coming to things like this. But but I think we talked early on about the the value of diversity in our genetics, diversity in our wool, diversity in our products. 
part of our strength as an industry is our the diversity in the people that raise sheep. But that's also a weakness for us because we are all very individualistic. And so we're all willing to sign that affidavit as individuals as opposed to everybody in Rio Vista saying, mm, this is how we do it. Or everybody in, in Placer County that raises sheep saying, you know, we're going to band together and, and work together following these parameters. And it's a, it's a really, um, it's, a, it's an impossible problem to solve in some respects because part of why we all choose to raise sheep is that we're the folks making the decisions and calling the shots and, and making decisions about genetics and management and all that. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that frustrates me a little bit or that I, I wish would carry a little more weight is um, you'll have a retailer come out and say, I want to have, I keep going back to ABF just because that was kind of, it's kind of run its course now. You know, it's pretty integral into the system. But um, you'll have a retailer come out and we have to go all ABF. We have to go ABF so we compete with these other stores that are doing ABF. The competition is pushing forward these ABF labels and we have to do it. And the grower will say, if you make me go ABF, I will lose a larger percentage of my animals. I have an obligation morally to care for my animals and I don't want to do that. And they say, well, it's what the consumer wants, we have to do it. And that, that to me, they, they force that consumer demand over the responsibility of that animal. And that's what bothers me more than anything, especially when they're trying to sell a product and they present it to that consumer and say, this is better. And this is a healthier yeah. system. And, this, and that's what drives me crazy behind the whole thing is they, they don't value the animal husbandry advice given by the producer. Well, the perception is, if you can raise them animal-free, then you must be better at it. But that's not what's happening. Not at all. No. Yes. And, like, the veterinarian profession has been extremely frustrated by this whole ABF movement. And there's state, like, policy statements or something like that that say, if ABF is to be a primary program, <laughs> that they, um, there has to be an alternative. So the animal still, if it needs treatment, it has to be treated, and then it has to go into a conventional market. But that doesn't exist for all products, right? So that, you know, if you have... They still exist, but they exist at such a discount that it's just not... It, it's still there, but it's... Not it's, in all commodities. Well, yeah, not in all commodities, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's a really, I mean, it's, it's a fact. If you go to a, I don't know, I, I went and toured a big cattle feed yard that everybody, if I said the name, would know who they are. And I asked him, you know, what's, it, what's the cost difference on feeding natural versus regular? 200 bucks a head and 2% death loss. Hands down. You go out and buy ABF, you're choosing that that farmer sacrifices one to 2% of their livestock. And that story doesn't get told at all. Right. And right. we all as producers know it. And we scream it at the top of our lungs, and we post it on Facebook, social media. But then it doesn't matter because the 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 people selling the product on the large retail level did their polls, keyed on these buzzwords. So we have to have this, and they push it. And it's just it's it's really frustrating to me that there's not a 
there, the ranch, because we're so close to the animals, we have a moral obligation tied to those animals. Right. Once you separate away from that, they don't tie that same obligation. And I really think our business ethics and morals in our, especially meat supply or livestock supply, really need to be just refreshed a little bit. And we got to remind ourselves how important it is that we truly take care of the animals, not sell things through labels that people want and how they think they should be taken care of. I think that that mentality extends to other things. So I, For sure. I had that very similar conversation about predators and, and things like that. And I saw a, a friend of mine in Southern Oregon who raises sheep and cattle. I was, I was kind of whining about losing lambs a couple of years ago. And I told this story on another podcast recently. But, well, feeling bad that that we'd lost some lambs, and and uh, Liz Hubbard from Oregon said, you know, the the day that losing a lamb doesn't bother you is the day you should quit raising sheep, mm-hmm. and that's hard to articulate to people that don't have that responsibility. It's hard to articulate. You know, I've I've had people tell me, well, you're you're just going to kill that lamb anyway. Yeah, that's how I get paid. But my ethical responsibility and my connection with those animals is far deeper than that. And it's hard to articulate that to somebody who's never had that experience. But we need to find a way to do it. Yeah. We need to find a way to do it. And even beyond the death loss, which is obviously a huge component. I mean, we lose, what, like 25% of our U.S. flock to prep is probably even higher than that. I just don't know the exact number. It's a huge percentage of the flock is lost to predators every year. And But the stress that's involved with having a right. predator near. Right. So it's not even the death loss that has occurred, but those animals are right. stressed out by that predator. Right. And it's it. <laughs> and what happens when you stress when you stress a chicken? <laughs> they don't lay an egg. Exactly. <laughs> Stop laying eggs. I now know yep. the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Can't stress your livestock. That's all there is exactly. to it. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So one of the other themes, and I'm not sure how long we're going to go tonight, but oh, we're killing it. What, what, are, going. what are the other interesting conversations tonight at the reception? was just kind of the different vibe or, or sense of community that you get amongst, amongst a bunch of wool growers, a bunch of uh, sheep people, versus um, all of us have been involved in other livestock, and I, my all my cattlemen friends are going to hate me Are you make fun of cowboys? I am. I am. You make fun of cowboys. I am. Oh, my goodness. I am. I, it, it is interesting... It's okay, Dan. I wear my cowboy boots to the sheep events and my Chuck Taylors to cow events. So. <laughs> I keep everybody guessing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do think it's interesting. There's a there's a kind of a self-deprecating humor at every sheep event I've been to, and maybe it's because sheep can figure out lots of different ways to cause problems. Um, but what, what's the difference in your experience? coming to a meeting like this versus coming to another ag meeting. I won't I won't call out my cattlemen friends, but other ag Yeah, meetings. I mean, yeah, you can even throw like Farm Bureau and something like yeah. that in there too. Yeah. Um, I, I think with, with sheep, 
you have to be so attentive to the to the sheep, and you really have to. Like, I mean, there's a reason in the Bible Jesus used sheep analogies through the whole thing. He didn't use cow analogies. He didn't use fish analogies. Well, he did use some fish analogies, but for a no, different reason. Aquaculture. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he didn't. You know, didn't use timber. He didn't use like there's a there's something tied to that sheep that requires you to be so attentive to the health of that animal and the well-being of that animal that um, I heard I was talking to a vet the other day and they were it might have actually been you um, she's a vet I know I just I have so many conversations with vets every day um, but anyway it was about cows and how incredibly durable they are that like, you can I think we we're talking about um, prolapses and how they just you can have just the, all these terrible things happen and that cow is really hardy and will cover up a lot of these illnesses or hurts and they'll kind of heal themselves. They're pretty miraculous animals. Whereas a sheep, you have to be so much more attentive to these little things right. that you know may lie in that margin of error on cows. And it's I, you can't degrade cowboys because the great cowboys are great cowboys. And, and there's there's an art to it. And you say how sheep are so stoic, cows are equally stoic. Yeah, I hate goats, but that's because I'm not a goat. <laughs> I, I'm not good at goat. Like, you know, I can't do that. And so you can't, that doesn't make fun of goats. That's more of a making fun of goats. And, and his Instagram account is at California Sheep Rancher. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think that's a big part of it. I also think that part of it with sheep has always been it's a little easier economically to get in the sheep business than it is to get in the cattle business. If you think about equipment and infrastructure and, and kind of the capital outlay, people can start a small sheep business. And I think part of it is that, that for the most part, the animals aren't as intimidating. Um, they take way better pictures for the uh, They absolutely do. They absolutely do. And so I, I've never been into it. Like, you go to Boot Barn, have you asked to see the sheep herder section? <laughs> no. No, I've never had the courage to ask that question. They, they look at you really funny. Most, yeah, most of those guys in there are weekend warrior cowboys. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I love Boot Barn. I literally just bought these boots at Boot Barn. But in the sheep herder section? No, no. No. I haven't seen the sheep herder section there. They got close to it with some short brim hats, but they didn't get too But they short. weren't quite, yeah. Yeah, they weren't okay. quite All right. correct. All right. so. We've digressed. I have no idea where we're going now. I, I don't know how to say we're, it. We're rudderless. We're yeah. rudderless now. Well, we're only an hour and ten minutes in. So. <laughs> Only, only, like less than two episodes. I know. We could go another thirty minutes and split it in half. You know. But, no, I, I, yeah, I, I really, I love the sheep industry. I know everybody here does, and, and it's just, you got, it's just, I don't know. It seems like it's easier to break in. It's easier to make friends. Right. It's easier to talk to people. Um, we all kind of, when you have sheep, you, everybody's had a, a wreck of some sort or another. They've all been through a struggle. They all kind of know. How, what it's like and <laughs> we're all pretty good at covering up and talking a little bigger than our hats are yeah, but it, you know it's it's really a good 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 industry and anybody that can come to it and you don't have to have a thousand sheep to be here you don't need right. two thousand I mean, you can buy one sheep you can 
really like wool and just show right. up. And, and you tend to be pretty welcome. And so sometimes it takes one or two years to you know start to really meet some people, but it, it's a beautiful industry with great people. The producers are literally the best people I know. One of my favorite authors um, is a guy named Ivan Doig who grew up on a sheep ranch in Montana. And two, two of my favorite lines from his books are one is that to be successful with sheep, even when you're not thinking about them, you got to think about them a little. And that has been my experience that kind of always got to yeah, be thinking about it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and the other line is he has a character that, that frequently says, the son of a bitch in sheep business. And that's the wrecks that all of us have had, right? All of us have had those, and, and all of us that are still around have survived those. And um, I think that's part of the part like of the three humor. in the last four months. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's part of the deal. I just told my, I, I keep telling myself I'm through them. There's no more problems. Then something else happens. <laughs> I, I'm I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop when we start lambing next month. Yeah, you're pretty close now, right? We are. We are. What? Less than five weeks? Days? Five weeks. Five oh, weeks. Oh, you have to give your update after the foot thing. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Le <laughs> future made episode. This far into this episode. Future <laughs> episode. Yeah. I have a feeling this episode will not retain listeners like previous ones. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to have to cut it into like ten-minute sections. <laughs> And publish it over the next six months. <laughs> oh, that's great. We're getting lazy. Anyway, well, I think this is good. This has been Sheep Stuff You Should Know with Ryan Mahoney. Dan Do Macon. Dr. Dr. Rosie We'll see you guys later. On location in San Diego. Yes, we're going to record a few more episodes. Probably not tonight. <laughs> uh.